like to invite you to please turn with me. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. I am eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ from this glorious passage. These nine verses contain the final appeals of the letter, beginning in Philippians 4. Our sermon title is A Life of Peace. What peace we have found in Christ and this peace with God that has come to us through the blood of Christ and his finished work on the cross then leads to an experience of the peace of God in our lives. And it has been my prayer that God would for each one of us this morning grant us this peace in an entirely new and deeper way through the power of his word, a life of peace. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God bless the preaching of his word. Motherhood is a glorious calling, but it's not an easy one. Moms carry an incredible responsibility. They work tirelessly. They are basically never off duty, and it can often be an overwhelming and exhausting work. In many cases, the mom is a referee, 
breaking up fights, a chauffeur driving kids to appointments and activities, a chef who is putting food on the table, a house cleaner who largely deals with messes others create, a laundry worker taking care of clothes, a financial manager who tracks spending, an administrator who manages the home, a nurse tending to wounds both real and imagined, an educator providing instruction, an evangelist sharing the gospel that these adorable sinners desperately need. A mother is a discipliner correcting wrongs, a counselor giving wisdom, a comforter drying tears. It is no wonder that God calls each one of us to honor mothers. Where would we be without them? I read a little story that made me smile. It was uh, about a woman who called a friend back when phones were connected to cords. Uh, she called and asked her friend, who was a mother of three young children, how she was feeling. The mom replied, honestly, I'm feeling terrible, completely overwhelmed. My head is splitting. My baby was crying all night. My back and my feet are killing me. The house is a mess. The kids are driving me crazy. Very sympathetically and kindly, the woman who called said, listen, go and lay down. I'll come over right away. I'll prep dinner for you, clean the house, take care of the children while you get some rest, okay? And then she said, by the way, how's Eric? Eric, the mom said, I don't have a husband named Eric. And the woman said, oh, goodness, I must have dialed the wrong number. There was then a long pause, after which the mother said, so you still coming over? I'm sure most moms can relate to the sense of being overwhelmed, desperate for help, uh, and sanity in the midst of countless responsibilities and challenges for which you will be greatly rewarded by the Lord. How can a mom experience a life of peace? More broadly, how can any of us experience a life of peace? God has been ministering throughout this service to various groups of people, to those with addictions we have prayed for, to those who are realizing that your life is not ordered as you may desire. We've recognized that Mother's Day is a day of difficulty, regret, and loneliness and sadness for some. The good news of this passage, the good news that God would have us here today, each one of us, is that peace is possible for us all. However distant it may seem from your present experience, a life of peace is possible for us all. Verse 1 gives a call to Christians, beginning with that word, therefore. Therefore, because we have a Savior, because he humbled himself and was exalted, because we are citizens of heaven, therefore, stand firm thus in the Lord. And then there are a number of commands that are given, and the uniting theme of these numerous commands is the peace of God. And you see that language in verse 7 and verse 9. There is a peace 
that surpasses and transcends understanding. And verse 9, we have the promise that as we practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. I thank God that it does not say anxiety will be with you, not discouragement will be with you, not restlessness will be with you. No, the peace, the God of peace will be with you. One commentator describes this peace as the calm serenity that characterizes God's very nature and that grateful, trusting Christians are welcome to share. That's what's available for us today. And if you're not a Christian, come to Christ first and foremost, not so you can have a particular life experience, but so that you can know peace with God, a just God who punishes sin, who must judge sin. We all deserve his judgment. We were all once hostile to God, enemies with God. He, through Christ, has brought us peace with God. Come to this Savior, who is the Prince of Peace, who came into this world to give us peace with God, and then whose blessings overflow into our lives, enabling us to live a life of peace in all that we do. Here are four ways every one of us can pursue a life of peace, as is always the case. Each one of these points comes directly from our passage. First, value relational harmony. Relationships are often the realm in which we are robbed of peace in life. In verses 2 and 3, Paul addresses a significant disagreement and conflict between two prominent women in the church, Judea and Syntyche. These women played a vital role in the mission of the church. We're told that they were serving as co-laborers with Paul in his mission. Parenthetical comment. It is a great lie to believe that great usefulness is for men only and not for women, or that the usefulness of women is restricted entirely to the home. Many are the Judeas and Syntyches who minister as fellow workers for the gospel. Close parenthetical comment. We don't know the issue that was behind this unresolved conflict, whether it was theological, whether it was some area of ministry in the church, or perhaps a relational offense. We do not know, but they weren't getting along, and Paul entreats, he pleads with each one of them individually to get along. He, he, he entreats them, he says, to agree in the Lord. He doesn't take sides, but he presses the issue of unity. There is something that is more important than the issue that they are in conflict over, and that is the relational harmony that is being eroded. And so in verse 3, he asks an unnamed true companion to help to mediate their dispute. Full of lessons for us. In life and in the church, we should anticipate relational difficulties even among the mature, and we should be eager to move toward peace and toward 
unity and toward resolution. So often it is the case, and it's because it is our sinful inclination to withdraw, to eject from the situation. If I don't get along with someone, I'm just going to go join a different church. But that's not the will of God for us. God wants us to pursue agreement. He wants us to value relational harmony. Here's another lesson for us. The best of us need regular relational help. We need the involvement of a, of a third party to help mediate and to resolve a situation. I personally have needed this in relationships in the church, in relationships on the pastoral team, and in my marriage. We need a, a true companion, pastor, a wise counselor, a mutual friend, who can come into the situation and can help us to see our contribution to the conflict, who can help us to understand the perspective of others. We need relational help. One more tip for promoting relational harmony, and this is from the end of verse 3, and that is to remember that in every Christian conflict, remember that uh, the name of your brother or sister is written in the book of life. That phrase, whose names are written in the book of life. In other words, remember the unity we are headed for. Remember, this is a brother or sister for whom Christ died. What joins us together are the strong bonds of the blood of Christ shed for us. The gospel has saved us. The gospel is changing us. And through this gospel, our names are written in the book of life. And therefore, in light of that identity that marks us all and the future unity that we will have when we dwell together in a world of love and peace, when Christ returns, therefore God entreats us, agree in the Lord. Tend to your relationships. Consider how often that is the point at which peace is eroded in our lives. The call of God is to be peacemakers. And we are entreated by God to agree in the Lord. Value relational harmony. Second, piece of counsel for a life of peace is to rejoice in the Lord always. Have I talked to you yet in this series about joy and the importance of rejoicing in the Lord? We've seen it again and again, and here we see it in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I don't know in light of your circumstances how those commands to rejoice and the repeated commands land on you, I'll tell you what, though, it hits different when it's coming from someone in prison. It hits different when it comes from someone who is suffering and who is suffering unjustly. The Apostle Paul had experienced such a wide range of physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual trials. And he is the one who says that we are obligated and commanded to rejoice. Maintain a joyful heart. Maintain a cheerful disposition. Maintain gospel happiness in all circumstances. Rejoice, not just rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. The source of our joy is the Lord, 
And because he is unchanging, we can rejoice always. And Paul repeats the command as if he is speaking to those who would say, well, if you knew what I was going through, if you knew how I'm feeling, if you knew my trials, he says again, I will say rejoice. Commentator Walter Hansen says a time of suffering is a time when rejoicing in the Lord is the only way to survive. So don't exempt yourself in the midst of hardship from the command to rejoice in the Lord because it is absolutely correct that a time of suffering is a time when rejoicing in the Lord is all you've got. It's your only hope to survive. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice. My favorite Sixers player, probably, is Tyrese Maxey. And it's because he brings that joy. When he was drafted, tears of joy. He was asked about the joy that he shows on the court. And he said, I get to wake up every morning and play basketball for a living. It is a beautiful thing. And there was one article that said, there are three things everybody mentions when you talk about Tyrese Maxey. His pure, absolute love for the game of basketball, his freakish work ethic, and his equally freakish happiness. That's who the guy is. I read that phrase, freakish happiness, and thought, you know what? The gospel creates a freakish happiness in the Christian. Christ died for our sins, and nothing compares to the joy of knowing him. Therefore, we will rejoice in the Lord always. A freakish happiness that can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5 then says, Let your reasonableness, or it could be translated gentleness. It's, uh, it's not a common word. It's a word that is the opposite of violence. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The people around us, friends and enemies, encouragers and critics, children and co-workers, experience our joy in the Lord as our gentleness, reasonableness, is made known to all. And the reason we can be gentle to everyone. How is it? How can that be even when we are mistreated, even when we are hated? What's there at the end of verse 5? The Lord is at hand. Meaning, the Lord Jesus Christ who came once into this world to die for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, this same Lord will soon return in glory. The Lord is at hand. And when he comes, he is going to bring everything under his control. That reality influences our posture in the world now. And it gives us peace and joy and a reasonable gentleness that is known to everyone. Rejoice in the Lord always. Three, fight anxiety with prayer. Fight anxiety with, I, I have prayed this week for the anxious, knowing that I will be communicating these words to those who even this weekend find yourselves beset with great anxiety. 
There's something that only the Spirit of God can do in our hearts, and that is to empower us to receive his truth and to follow and apply these commands. Verses 6 and 7 is one of the great passages of the New Testament. Do not be anxious about anything. Just, just let the command from the Lord rest on you. Do not be anxious about anything. Christians are not to be excessively concerned. They are not to be anxiously burdened and distressed in a state of sinful anxiety. We live in a world full of troubles and anxiety. And the reason this command is so challenging is that anxiety is our natural response to financial problems, to relational difficulties, parenting challenges, health difficulties, the whole direction of our society. We think about what kind of world our kids and our grandchildren will grow up in and how easily we become anxious. Anxious refers to the condition of, of inner turmoil, a, a nervous, morbid, unhealthy concern in which our minds and our hearts begin to control us. Our minds and our hearts take over. In context here in Philippians 4, part of what is in view is our relationships, Udi and Syntyche, and our, our tendency to be anxious about others. Our emotions, our imaginations take control. We, we play out worst-case scenarios. I do not need to describe this because most of us know this experience very well. More than a few Christians would say that their main battle against sin has to do with being a chronic worrier. It's hard to even imagine our lives at times without the presence of anxiety because it becomes so constant in the background of all of our thinking and all of our actions. David Pallison says, we've got plenty of reasons to worry, but we have plenty of better reasons not to worry. I think that's helpful. There are plenty of reasons to worry, but there are plenty of better reasons not to worry. And notice, let's look at the text here. Notice in our text, there is not only a, a comprehensive negative, we've looked at that, do not be anxious about anything. How do I do that? There is also a corresponding comprehensive positive. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How can we be anxious about nothing? The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Turn your anxieties into supplications. When you pray, don't, don't leave your anxieties at the door. Bring them to the Lord in prayer. God is inviting us to bring all of our anxieties, all of our needs to him, to come before the throne of grace and to pour out our hearts before him in prayer. 
Talk to him about the things that worry you. Talk to him about the things that trouble you. And as, as we pray, and here's what we so often miss. Look at this in the text. We, as we pray, we are to do so with an attitude of thanksgiving. This is absolutely essential. If our prayers are not marked by a spirit of thanksgiving, then even our prayers will deteriorate and become simply a way of grumbling to God about the bad things that are happening or might happen. It is precisely in our greatest moments of anxiety that God calls us to put on thanksgiving. Come to him, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving means we need to be more aware of what we have in Christ than what we don't have. Thanksgiving means forget not all his benefits. Forget not the goodness of God to you. Oh, how easily, and if we're not careful, it happens. Anxiety can blind us to the goodness of God to us. It must not happen. Pray and pray with thanksgiving. Actively fight anxiety with grateful prayer. And here's the, the glorious thing. It is as we do this, we are told, verse 7. And here's what you, here's what you won't get in any of the, the secular psychology books on a life of peace. Here's what the world does not know. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it is greater than human wisdom. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, may God do it in our hearts and minds even now. The greatest need in a life of peace is this. It's not to have our circumstances change. It's not even to have our prayers answered. It is to have your heart and mind guarded by God in the midst of every storm. Your heart is the, is the center of your inner life. Your mind is your thought life, your, your processes of reasoning. And we so desperately, I need this. I need to have my heart and my mind guarded. But here's the thing. I can't do it on my own. We are incapable of guarding our hearts and minds in our own power. The problem is too often, that's what David, David Pallison once put it this way, too often the barbarians are rioting in the streets of our mind. He used that phrase, I was like, I know that experience. The barbarians rioting in the streets of our minds. What do we do? Well, it's not so much what we do, it is what God does. We come to him with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, and as we do so, this is the good news. God gives us his own peace. His own peace to guard us. I love that word. Guard, it is a, it's a military word to surround and fortify a building or a city. A garrison, a fortress, protecting you from enemy invasion. Guard. And, and when you have the peace of God, guarding you, it changes everything. Christian, you can, you can sleep well tonight. 
There is an army surrounding you and protecting you, guarding your heart and mind. The peace of God himself to guard you, to protect you. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you, the psalmist says, Psalm 55, 22. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Isaiah 26 says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. All who are under attack, whether from others or from your own thoughts, which sometimes we are our own worst enemy, hear today from the Lord that there are walls and bulwarks to protect you. And it says there in Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then comes that call. What can we do? Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He is our fortress. He is our strong tower. In him we have protection. And he will guard your heart and your mind. Pray it even now that as you go into this week, it may not be that your circumstances get any easier. But there is a God who gives his peace to guard our hearts, to guard our minds so that we can experience by his grace a life of peace even in the midst of the storm. The Christian is one who sings, I have a shelter. We have a shelter from every storm. The Lord himself is our shelter and he is our peace. Fight anxiety with praying. And then fourth and last, think about good things. Verse 8 is also one of the great verses of the New Testament. And it is a call, think about this, it is a call to the discipline of Christian thinking. Anxiety thrives on a spiral of downward thoughts. But that whole process stops when we take ourselves in hand and when we set our minds on the true and on the good and on the lovely and on the excellent. We set our minds on things that move us outside of ourselves. In this verse, God is getting after our thought life. What, what does your mind tend to dwell on? What does your mind tend to turn over? What are you setting your mind on? Our minds naturally drift toward anxieties and sorrows and fears and what ifs. An old man once said, I have known a great many troubles in life, but most of them never happened. The way that God guards our mind is by empowering us to set our minds on a wide range of positive things that are excellent and praiseworthy. He guards our mind by calling us to set our mind on particular realities. And there are eight categories here given by God for us to reflect on. 
Let your mind dwell here. Whatever is true. You need to be a student of doctrine, theology, the truth. The truth of God, the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the truth about yourself. Reject the lies and set your mind on the truth. Whatever is honorable, beginning with God himself as the great honorable majestic king and then expanding to the honorable qualities of others. Whatever is just, what is in keeping with the justice of God, whatever is pure, because purity does not begin with our actions, but with our thought life. And our culture militates against keeping our minds pure and oh, how we need to pray for God's protection upon the men and women of this church to think about what's pure, whatever is lovely, what is aesthetically pleasing, what is attractive, what causes pleasure and delight. The beauty is all around us in this world that God has made. It's there in music, in books, in poetry, in art, in food. It's there in sunsets, in spring, in rain, and in so much more. Whatever is commendable. Okay, so set your mind, what is admirable? What is well done? Where do I see strengths and accomplishments? I just think of the conflicts that could be avoided or resolved. I think of the marriages that could be healed today if there were a determination to think about the commendable. And then the last two words summarize the list. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. So Christian, you have your marching orders. I have my marching orders. Think about these things. Think about these things, about good, true, honorable, just, pure, and lovely things. Verse 9 then concludes with an appeal to Paul's example. He himself is not anxious or complaining. He is living in the good of the gospel. Practice these things. He's, this is essential to the Christian life. We don't just take in teaching. We, we practice these things. We are applying the truth to our lives. Practice these things and, and here's a forward-looking promise, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. God, he's the God of peace. It's an attribute of God. He knows all things, and God is not an anxious God. He is the God of peace, and today he is giving us his peace, the peace of God, and he's giving us his presence as the God of peace to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Seek this peace, pray for this peace, long for this peace, and experience by the grace of God all the joy and blessing that comes from a life of peace. I want to invite the band to return as I close. If you were to have walked through the village of Epworth, England in the early 1700s, like between 1700 and 1720, and if you would have done so and looked through the window of the pastor's house, you might have seen something odd. You might have seen a woman at a table 
with her kitchen apron pulled completely over her head with a sea of kids all around her. The woman was Susanna Wesley, and two of those ten children were John and Charles Wesley, who would do so much good for the cause of Christ. Uh, Susanna knew about a large family. She grew up in a family as one of 25 kids. I don't even know what that, what that means. I don't... But now Susanna was, was a mother, and she, she knew the heartbreak of losing many children in infancy. Her husband was not a good man. Uh, it fell to her to manage the farm, to homeschool the children, and to do many more things. The biographies talk about how her organizational and managerial skills are just legendary. But the most important thing to her was her relationship with God and enjoying daily communion with him. Her challenge was to find uh, a place of privacy in a home crawling with children. And so in order to spend time with the Lord, she would sit at the table every day with her Bible, and she would pull her long apron over her head, and all the kids knew this that was the signal. That meant, keep quiet, don't bother mom. I don't know if it works. Probably have all these kids coming in under the, you know, the apron. And there she made prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And there she set her mind on what is true. And there she experienced the peace of God in the midst of the storms of life. And the great legacy of Susanna Wesley shows the enduring power of living with the peace of God. You commune with God. You have a sense that the peace of God is with you. You're living that life of thanksgiving. You're living in gospel happiness. It makes all the difference in our lives. Friends, a life of peace is possible because the God of peace is with us. Jesus Christ himself is the great Prince of Peace. He has given us peace with God by dying in our place upon that old rugged cross. And he did so, so that the God of peace would be with us forever. Therefore, we will not be shaken, for we know the Lord is with us. And so for mothers and for us all, may the peace of God, together we pray, together we cry out for this Lord. May your peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus now and forever, that we might live lives of peace for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.